This podcast is brought to you by Final Stretch Media. They gave me a voice. They turned my ideas into high-quality audio and video content. With their professional team, equipment, and expertise, they record, edit, and provide video and audio. Final Stretch Media has done a fantastic job with everything video and audio related for me. So if you ever find yourself in the need, uh, you can find their information in the show notes. This podcast is also brought to you by Quickly Brain Racers, the first ever live racing competition for the brain. Download their app and play live this weekend on an iOS device against the world. I have raced and it's really, really cool. So definitely check them out. You can find the link to the app in the show notes. Our last sponsor creates survival technology as well as camping and other outdoor gear. Outer Wild's ultimate goal is to provide clean technologies for everyday devices as they are driven to create a more sustainable world. Use the code IS, that's a capital I, capital S, on your next purchase and receive an additional 10% off. So go give their products a look. You can find a link to their website in the show notes. Welcome back to another episode of Thinking Critically. Today, I am joined by Dr. Tanya Israel. He's a professor in the Department of Counseling, Clinical, and School Psychology at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Uh, she holds a PhD in Counseling Psychology and is a fellow of the American Psychological Association. Dr. Israel teaches about helping skills, leadership, and community collaboration, among other things. Uh, she has facilitated educational programs and difficult dialogues about a range of topics, including abortion, law enforcement, religion, and sexual orientation. Her most recent book, which is why she is on today's podcast, uh, Beyond Your Bubble, How to Connect Across the Political Divide, Skills and Strategies for Conversations That Work, grew out of Dr. Israel's skill building workshop that she developed and delivered to hundreds of participants following the 2016 election. It draws on her strengths as a psychologist and a community organizer to prepare people to engage in dialogue across political issues. Anyway, Dr. Israel, thank you so much for joining and really appreciate having you today. This afternoon. I'm so happy to be here. Absolutely. So first off, I just kind of wanted to dive into your background. So you have obviously a science background. You are a PhD level psychologist. So I'm curious as to your science journey. How did you become involved with science? Why did you choose psychology? So where did it all start for you? That's a great question. I, I chose psychology before I chose science. Uh, when I was a high school sophomore, I think I took a psychology class and I thought, okay, that's what I want to do. And when I was getting my, and so I became a psychology major in, in college. And then I ended up getting a master's degree in human sexuality education because I was doing HIV education. And one of the things that's clear to me is I'm always interested in how do I do this best? Like, what's the best way to do this? So I was doing this work and I thought, well, I want to know what the, what will help to guide me in doing that. So I, I have sort of the mind for uh, science in terms of the curiosity uh, element. But when I was uh, getting my master's, I was a TA and I loved teaching college students. And so that was really what drove me to want to get a PhD. And then psychology continued to be my love and counseling psychology in particular. Counseling psychology, because it's about not just about how do we understand people, but it's about how do we understand how to help people better, how to make things better. So that's really the work that I've done over my career is research on how do we make things better. And 
when I was getting my PhD, uh, I talked to my advisor and I said, you know, I'm, I'm not as interested in research. I'm, I really want to teach. And if, you know, if I have to do research to do that, I'll do it. And she said, well, why don't you try doing some research? And I said, oh, okay, that's a good idea. And so once I started doing research, the thing that was clear to me is that I have questions that no one's answered yet, that I can't go to the library to get an answer to. And if I want the answers, I'm going to have to find them myself. And that really got me dedicated to the research aspect of, of the work. And, you know, I've been at a research institution for over 20 years now, and it's, it's been so fulfilling because, because my work is not just um, about science, but about how to use science to improve people's lives. That's wonderful. And I think it's really interesting how at first you say that you didn't actually like research, like you were more interested in the teaching component, but then you were like, okay, well, I have questions. So mm -hmm. with no answers, and if I actually want answers, well, I'm going to have to warm up to research then. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So would you say at this point that uh, you're a big fan of research or that it's kind of grown on you over the years? Yes, I am a big fan of research and I'm, I'm a big fan of, of um, also mentoring other people uh, into doing research and into doing the kind of intervention research that I do. Because again, it's a, it's a sort of thing where we can't just go on, well, you know, this feels like the right thing to do. Oh, this is how we can help people. But really like what, what does the science say? How can, how can we use evidence to guide us in making the world a better place? That really, that last statement there really resonates with me because that's the whole reason why I went into science is because I definitely wanted to make the world a little bit better than it was uh, when I got here and like to leave it better. And I think that evidence, or excuse me, well, yeah, evidence, scientific evidence uh, is one of the best ways to make the world a better place because it is through the generation of new knowledge uh, that, or scientific evidence, and then you can use that to go out and change the world and make it a little bit better. And it is, in my opinion, I'm sure you probably feel uh, similar, it is one of the best ways to go about doing that. Uh, because you know, if you look around, uh, the entire modern world is built off of scientific endeavor, more or less. And facts, evidence, knowledge that has been generated through the scientific process uh, that has been taken, it's been used to create newer technologies or new technologies. and then you know, we have extended lifespans. We have wonderful technologies such as the platform that we're using today to communicate you know, across the country. Uh, it is just fantastic. I, anyway, I will also say that being a psychologist, I am aware of the flaws in our thinking. And so just kind of going by, I don't know, our, our gut or our thinking doesn't always get us to the best place. And so I think that science, be, because I understand, be, because of the science that's been done in psychology, I understand the limits to our thinking and the, the need for science to help to guide us. Yeah, absolutely. I agree 100%. And one of the things I talk about regularly uh, on this podcast through intelligent speculation, something um, that I believe that everyone should be aware of to some degree is cognitive biases, which is I'm 
know, as a psychologist, I'm sure you're intimately aware with all of those. So these heuristics or mental shortcuts that have evolved over the millennia in order to help us survive. But in the modern world, they kind of cause us to go down an irrational route more often than not. Um, so for example, something that's been talked about a lot in the past couple of years is confirmation bias, particularly when it comes to bias in the media and people looking, you know, where they get their information from through a particular lens of uh, beliefs, essentially, that you want something to be true, therefore you're going to seek out that information. But yes, uh, the human mind is fantastic. It's one of the most complex structures in the known universe. It gives rise to consciousness, which is novel, as far as we know, among all of the animals, at least to the degree that we have it. Uh, but it is also not perfect. And there are plenty of ways that our thinking can lead us astray. There are glitches in our operating system. <laughs> glitches in the matrix. They're <laughs> in the, an operating system. Yes, precisely. <clears throat> and one of the things that we are apparently a bit hardwired for, which is you know unfortunate and perhaps a bit outdated in today's modern world, is tribalism. It's kind of the you know, my, my camp versus your camp uh, type of deal. We tend to separate ourselves and then I don't know if it makes it easier or where exactly this came from, but I think it is so evident in today's world, particularly when it comes to politics. I don't know how you feel about that, but do you, do you see a lot of tribalisms in today's society still? Well, sure. And I think one of the things that's interesting are sort of the building blocks of that and how do we actually, uh, what, what do we do about it? That's always the question I'll be asking is, okay, well, yes, we, we do see that happening. And what do we do about it? Um, I, you know, one of the things in terms of my journey toward this book is, uh, you know, science is a piece of it, but also it's my own work in terms of trying to see things from a different perspective and trying to connect with people across political lines. Uh, so several decades ago, I started a group to bring together pro-choice and pro-life people to have dialogue with each other. And prior to that, I had, you know, I was a, I was a women's studies major. I worked in a clinic that did abortions. I, um, I, I was involved in pro-choice politics. And so, I, I really had these ideas, you know, um, from all of that about the way to see the issue. And I, I was not particularly good at, at trying to understand that from a different perspective, but I got really tired of just being angry and I didn't feel like that was helping the women who I was trying to help. And so I reached out to uh, the, some folks who were involved in the pro-life movement and I said, you know, do you want to start a, a discussion and bring some people together? And, and we did that and it was fascinating because it didn't change anything about how I felt about reproductive rights, but it changed so much about how I felt about people who disagree with me on the issue. And a large part of that was realizing that I was evaluating their conclusions through my own values and experiences. And that was the wrong metric. Um, and if I actually really listened and tried to understand their starting point and in terms of their values, the experiences that they had had and, and all of that, well, their conclusions made absolute sense then. They just didn't make sense based on my 
criteria or based on my values. So that has been really helpful to me just in terms of being able to do perspective taking and really want to understand a view different from my own. Would you say that your experience working with these groups of trying to connect, so you were pro-choice at the time, trying to connect with pro-life individuals uh, when it comes to abortion, mm -hmm. that you know this kind of laid the groundwork for what would eventually be, so at some point, a transition into trying to bridge the gap in politics? I mean, you have Absolutely. a lot of- Absolutely. Yeah, okay. Absolutely. And I think because I had that personal experience, and then for over 20 years now, I've been doing research on LGBT issues, and that's really also brought me into conversations where people have different perspectives around religion. Uh, I've done training for law enforcement. I've, you know, I've worked with different people who, who aren't already on the same page <laughs> as where I'm coming from. And it's not very useful for me to have those conversations if I don't actually understand where they're coming from. If I'm not trying to really get their view, if I'm just telling them that their view is wrong, then first of all, that doesn't do anything to shift where they are. And it also like leaves me in a very uninformed kind of place of, of not not being able to get a different perspective. So, so this ability to take perspective, this ability to, to use your mind to not just reinforce what you already know, but to be curious about a different view. Um, and when, when I've been reading about it, what I've come across is uh, the concept of intellectual humility. And it's, it's a component of uh, cultural humility. And intellectual humility is really you can... Um, hold on to very strong views about something, but still be respectful of and curious about a different view on that. And that is such a helpful stance going into dialogue. Um, I, I, I really think that trying to increase and encourage our own curiosity about a different view is one of the most helpful things that we can do. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, with your comment there about the intellectual humility and knowing the limitations of your own knowledge, hey, you can't know everything, nobody does, uh, being understand it, understanding of other people's positions, being open to listening to them, uh, being open to change. I mean, these are all things that come along with just being responsible with, I suppose, your own belief systems and what you use to kind of structure how you move through the world that mm -hmm. it shouldn't be this uh, rigid, unmoving um, contraption or structure. It should be dynamic and malleable because as we learn more things about the world, you're going to need to update it accordingly. Uh, things may change. I mean, of course, core some core values will always remain, but as new information becomes available, um, updates are just it's something that's going to need to happen and you just need to be open to these things. Well, and, and yes, I think all of that is true that we need to be open to learning new things. Like we always want to be able to learn new things. Um, I think that some of this isn't even about changing our own minds about a, a, a fact or a topic, but changing our own minds about people who have a different view of it. Um, I think, and, and this, um, 
the, the research in this, they call this naive realism, where we have this belief that our own views are really well-founded in logic and, and benevolence toward other people. And of course, people who disagree with us then, they're irrational, they're, they're mean-spirited, you know, they don't care. Yeah. And, and these are the allegations that are, are, you know, thrown from both sides toward the other. And I, I don't think we need to do that. I, I don't think that that will ever be helpful to us um, in, in terms of trying to have productive conversations and, and trying to um, bring people together to promote understanding. You know, it's interesting that you say that because I spend a decent amount of time on social media. I admit that. And a lot of that has to do with managing like Facebook pages and things that, and social media account for intelligence speculation, but I like to do a lot of reading to see how people interact with each other online uh, because I find it fascinating. Um, not so much me commenting, but just kind of reading through people's posts. And when it comes to politics, you know, you're talking about this naive realism. Uh, I find it happening both with liberals and conservatives, and I'm sure that I'm guilty of it to some degree as well. Uh, of course, I'm the first to admit that we all have biases uh, and preferences and things of that nature, and it's very difficult to minimize these things. But I read the, for example, like on a, a liberal-oriented post where it's attacking the conservatives, calling them names, saying, I cannot believe that they believe X, Y, and Z, blah, blah, blah. Um, and then on the conservative-oriented posts, it's on the same topics, it's, again, the name-calling attack, attacking the liberals, they can't believe this, they're immoral, et cetera. So the naive realism that you observe happening uh, from individuals on both sides of the right. uh, political spectrum. And yeah. to a degree, um, you know, it becomes very damaging depending on how you approach it. So of course you're going to disagree, right? Everyone is going to disagree to, mm -hmm. to a certain extent. But when you start calling names, you're not willing to have an open di a dialogue with them. Um, that's when it can become very damaging. Yeah, you know, and there's, really there's, I, I do that same thing. I so appreciate mm -hmm. that that you do that because I also will look at social media. I'll look at a hashtag for something that I have an opinion about, and I want to see like what are the different views that people have on this, and and I'll and I'll go, oh, I can see how they can see it that way. I don't agree with them. Like I like, and that's the thing. It doesn't change my opinion. Like I'm like, no, I still believe what I believe, but I can see how someone could see things differently. And I, and I think that that's beneficial. Part of it is I don't get quite so upset at other people about things. Um, and, and really our stress around political conflict is, is so, um, is so high right now. It's really increased over the years. And, and it's not good for us. It's not healthy for us. And so people are getting so triggered by other people's, um, by, by people having a different view, just simply by people having a different view. And the other thing that I see a lot when I'm, when I'm doing that thing that you do is I see a lot of accusations of hypocrisy. Well, if you're so upset about that, why aren't you that upset about this? And both sides are doing this constantly. Mm -hmm. And I just don't see how it's helping us. It's not, yeah. So the hypocrisy, you see that all the time, uh, one side accusing the other, mm -hmm. and then the whataboutism. Um, I, I mean, I've seen that happen from both sides as well. Whenever there is something presented that is uncomfortable, or perhaps they don't, they don't, 
they don't have a well-founded argument, so they just use some sort of whataboutism argument. So again, I've observed that on both sides. The hypocrisy happens on both sides. It is remarkable to me, you know, going back to your comment about naive realism, how much I have observed that but never been able to actually put a label to it of what exactly I was observing. So thank you for that. <laughs> well, I got, I got, Glad I got I that help. from your book. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, you know, beyond your bubble, uh, which is fantastic, by the way, I love that I just finished, finished reading it the other night. What was the impetus? Why exactly did you feel compelled that you need, needed to write this book? I mean, it is very timely. It just came out this past year. Um, and we are very politically divided right now. The polarization is, fair, is, is pretty intense in the United States when you look at the metrics over, uh, over the decades. We are very divided at the moment. Uh, what exactly was your motivation for writing the book? <clears throat> After the 2016 election, it was pretty clear that we were divided, that we were having trouble communicating across that divide. I also, you know, I was surprised at the outcome of the election and that made me say, whoa, there's something I haven't been paying attention to. There are some people I haven't been paying attention to. And, and that's, uh, you know, I, I thought, well, that's, that's not very helpful. And, and I've been doing work for decades, uh, teaching people about uh, listening and other, other communication skills. And I thought, well, maybe I have something I can offer here. So I started by creating this thing that I call um, the flow chart that will resolve all political conflict in our country, because uh, I'm optimistic like that. So, but, but really it was a way of trying to help people be more intentional about whether or not they're going to go into these conversations. And if they are, then what are the things that they can do to make it a more um, successful or productive conversation. So I created a flowchart, and you know, spoiler alert, it did not actually resolve all political conflict in our country yet. Um, but it's okay. From, it's a it's a it's a good step in, the, in it's a first step in the right direction. Exactly. I think it's just a distribution <laughs> issue. So everyone should yeah. just go to my website, download the flowchart, and that's going to solve it all. Um, but I so I was like, okay, we need something more. So I started to create and I created a workshop, a skills based workshop to help people to develop those skills that I knew would be helpful in having dialogue. And it's, you know, when I say I knew that it's because because that's what the evidence all says. The evidence says we need to be able to listen to try to understand other people. Um, managing our emotions is important because people get really um, upset when they're hearing a different view. Uh, and perspective taking is really helpful. So I created a skills-based workshop to help people to do this. Uh, several hundred people went through the workshop and I was hearing a lot from people about it and uh, about how it was helpful to them. They wanted more resources. So I was like, I guess I've got to write a book now. So it's it's the first book I've written. I've written lots and lots of research articles, but I, I, I wanted to write this based on evidence, but I didn't want it to read like a research article. So I wrote it in a way to be super accessible and applicable um, so that it was really um, a, a tool that people could use to apply to, you know, so many people are struggling with this right now. And I, and I keep hearing people talk about, you know, I'm, I, I'm having trouble with my family. I had to unfriend all these people. I, you know, that, that we're distressed about this as a country. And so I wanted to offer something helpful. That's really what the impetus was. It's fantastic. And I have to say it is very readable. 
and the examples, how you have the sample dialogues between two individuals that clearly don't agree, that is a fantastic way to illustrate and demonstrate the concepts that are being talked about in the book. Um, at least I found it very readable. Um, it's not it's not a long, lengthy tome. Uh, it is a nice, concise 150, like 160 pages. It reads very easily. Yeah, there it is, beyond your bubble. <laughs> yes, uh, <laughs> but full of wonderful, great information that the average person can then use uh, and then, uh, or excuse me, read and then implement in daily life. So yeah, I think it's fantastic. And then also, you know, your comment about how this is a distressing, not the book, but the political polarization. The, I mean, I've observed that in my own family and friends and online, and the tensions particularly between family members uh, becomes very heated. Some people stop talking to each other. I know that one of my family members, because we didn't disagree over the restrictions in the beginning of the pandemic, uh, so for example, we had to go into the uh, rest in place orders for like two to three months. I was posting what the science was saying online and we got into a lengthy argument and then ended up unfriending me on Facebook um, over the fact that we couldn't agree on what the science was saying. And to me, that's a tragedy. I, I really, really try not to unfriend individuals, particularly family members, if we, uh, but friends in general, uh, if we don't agree over something political, even if we get into a contentious, uh, contentious topic and like a discussion where clearly emotions are getting the best of uh, both of us or at least one of us. But anyway, it's yeah, it's it's really unfortunate. And I think that the material presented in your book definitely could help uh, people in general just to have better conversations. And one of the things too that was really interesting, and I am curious to hear uh, your thoughts on this, is you don't you you talk about dialogue, and you explain it briefly in the book too, right? So you say like there's there's like discussion or debate, discourse, but then dialogue is what you end up on, and I'm curious as to why you would call why again it's called dialogue instead of like a, a discourse or something of that nature. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's to try to look at what are all the different things that were that, that are being modeled for us. So if you turn on the TV, you are probably seeing not even debate, but really diatribe, people just venting and and uh, forcefully expressing their views with it doesn't even matter if there's somebody else there for them to, you know, to interact with. It's really just about sort of spewing things out. So that's really diatribe. But even, uh, you know, when we think about debate, um, so so you think about like, you know, your high school debate team, what are they doing? They're trying to win, you know, that the goal mm -hmm. is to win. The goal is to make your points in such a way that, that an outside observer would, would say that you, that you win, uh, you, you got it right. I think sometimes we think that's what we're supposed to be doing, that we're supposed to be trying to convince the other person, you know, lay things out in this way. So, so that an outside observer would say, oh yes, you did the best job you know, we're not a debate team. Uh, we are actually human beings in relation with each other. And so winning 
doesn't help us to achieve our goals. Okay, so let me talk about the goals for a minute because this this is important. I always ask people in the workshops, what brought you to this? Why are, why are you interested in dialogue? And really the, one of the main reasons is there's somebody in my life who I'm having trouble connecting with um, because of our differences of views. There are also people who talk about, I wanna persuade or convince someone, I wanna find common ground, I'm feeling distressed about the political divide and I wanna try to heal it, or I simply cannot fathom how somebody could see things or vote or behave in the way that they do. For any of those goals, what you want to do is actually understand the other person and connect with them. That's going to help you, even if you're trying to persuade somebody, if you don't know where they're coming from, if you don't really understand them, and if they don't feel like you're a valuable resource to them, you're not going to have any success in that. So, so dialogue, I talk about as being a conversation that's focused on connection and understanding. Because it turns out that no matter what your goal is, that's what's going to help you to reach your goal. I like that. And I definitely agree with you 100% that the, the dialogue is the correct, I suppose, terminology. And I also think it's, this just came to me, it's funny that all of these words that start with discussion of some ver uh, varying degree start with a D. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought it was kind of funny. But anyway, yeah, so dialogue. And that's really, really important, obviously, to be open and listening to the other person and trying to understand their position. And of course, this goes beyond just politics as well. Uh, just forming better relationships with friends, with family. Uh, nobody's going to agree all the time. So uh, having having conversations where you disagree, knowing how to have these disagreeable conversations uh, respectfully is really, really important. And that's definitely where, um, where the dialogue comes mm -hmm. into play. Mm -hmm. So that being said, uh, you know, digging a little bit deeper into your book, one of the things that I found really interesting, and it's also something that I've talked about as well, is you bring up the, the fight or flight, that when you're being presented with things that challenge your beliefs or information that you don't necessarily agree with, that it activate, activates the same reactionary system as if you were to encounter a physical threat. That's really interesting. Absolutely. And, you know, it's not only being in that conversation, but when people even think about having that conversation, I, I talk to people all the time who are just so emotionally activated just by hearing somebody's voice on the radio or by, you know, and they're playing this conversation in their heads of the conversation that they would have with that person and how that person would respond. I mean, somebody who they've never even met and, and getting very worked up about it. And one of the things that we know is that that heightened level of, uh, of emotion is actually it's not good for us to to stay at that level. I mean, that's why that's why, you know, trauma can be so difficult, you know, childhood abuse, like all of those things, because it keeps you at that level. And it really does physical damage even to us. So trying to find ways of managing our emotions. It's not just about like, your tone so the other person can hear you. It's really about taking care of ourselves even uh, so, so that we can stay engaged in those conversations if we choose to be in them. 
Yeah, definitely taking control of your emotions when you're in a dialogue where you're hearing information that you don't necessarily agree with. I can't think of anything more important to the success of that particular conversation mm -hmm. uh, because I know from my experience over the years and I've really tried to get better at this. And you know, this response where you have this activation of the fight or flight mechanism, it's, it's natural. Uh, it, it's built in for a reason, but people need to be able to work through this, to work through these emotions. And I know for me, like as soon as I get presented with something that I don't wanna hear, or perhaps I'm in a online uh, dialogue discussion, whatever you'd like to call it, uh, where my point is being refuted and I don't like necessarily want to see that because I don't want to have my worldview challenged. The mm -hmm. first thing that happens to me is I get like that, that flush of adrenaline mm -hmm. and then the heart starts to, starts to beat uh, really fast. Uh, and then I get the head rush and I, I'm so aware of it now at this point because it still happens to me when I'm taken, uh, when I'm caught off guard with just words again, these are just words, no physical threat. When I'm caught off guard, it still happens to me. And I've tried so hard to work to get, uh, to get rid of it, but you can't. Uh, all you can do, I guess, is just work past it. So be aware of it. And then, you know, take some deep breaths, give yourself some time, tell yourself that it's not an actual physical threat. Um, to me, I think the best component is time, just waiting. You know how they say, if you're ever angry, don't write that email right away, sleep on it and then do it the next day. So that, that's, that saying has been around for a while. Perhaps it was a letter at some point in the past. I don't know, but. Uh, yes, get out your quill pen and write that thing tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, what you're doing is perfect because you, the awareness is so important. The, the sooner we are aware that we're having this reaction, then the easier it is for us to work with it. I, I often, you know, think that, all right, this this is not a saber-toothed tiger. You know, this is not a physical threat. The worst thing that's going to happen in this conversation is that somebody's going to disagree with me forcefully, you know, like in a loud voice or in an elevated tone. That's probably the worst thing that's going to happen. So just trying to remember that even is, is really helpful. But then the other things you're talking about, we can work with our physiology. We're having a physiological response. Okay, great. What do we do physiologically then? We can do some deep breathing. We can try to ground ourselves physically by just noticing the feeling of your feet on the floor or touching your own hand. Those kinds of things can help to, to reduce that physiological response and put us in a place where, where we've regained our equilibrium and we can continue that conversation. I will say also that you're talking about having these conversations online. I mean, like online, that's not a conversation, you know, it's an exchange, but I think, uh, you know, it's, it's what so many of us are doing is we're having these exchanges and say, well, I've tried to talk to this person, but what we've done is we've, you know, commented on their Facebook post, which is a very different kind of thing. It's a public environment, first of all, and back to science. One of the things that we know when we're trying to do perspective taking is that the more sources of information we have about that other person, then the easier it is for us to try to take their perspective. So for example, if all you have is a post that somebody's put up on social media, that's not very much information. But if you 
pick up the phone and you call that person and you can just even hear the tone of their voice, um, then that's going to help you to understand them better. And certainly if you can see them and see their nonverbals, even on a screen, that's going to do even more for you. So I, I think that it's important that we keep in mind those exchanges on social media and on the internet aren't really giving us all of the information that's going to help us to take someone's perspective. Yeah, uh, all of the uh, all of the nonverbal cues are not going to be there, uh, which is why words are sometimes, which is sometimes, but oftentimes, easily misconstrued. You get the wrong impression from like a text message or from an email, uh, etc., because you don't have the subtle tonal in, um, tonal fluctuations in the voice. You don't have the body language that goes along with it. Uh, so there, yeah, there is definitely a component to actually being able to interact with the person in real life. And I think that people would be more compassionate if, uh, you know, if we interacted more in that, in that manner off of, uh, off of the online space, just because I think that, you know, when you can hide behind a computer screen or hide behind a keyboard online, people are far meaner than they would be in real, in real life. Yes. At least and that's sometimes my observation. We, if, if we just had more emojis, you know, then, then that <laughs> would help. But it turns out that we, we have the capacity to create emojis with our faces, you know, <laughs> when we can actually see somebody else. And that's, you know, the emojis are, are just a, a representation of facial expressions. And the more we can just have those facial expressions with each other, then the more human we will be with each other. Absolutely. Although I suppose right now it's a bit of a challenge because of the pandemic. However, when things begin to become normalized a bit more, hopefully people will start going out and having the conversations that need to be had in person versus just online. But I do think that the, the <laughs> one of the things that's that's come out of the pandemic is that people are a lot more comfortable using these online kinds of ways of communicating like, you know, Zoom or FaceTime or, you know, Google Hangouts, whatever it is. And so that's, that allows us to have that dialogue where we can actually see somebody's facial expressions in real time. And, and I think that, that that can be really beneficial for us to continue doing moving forward because we're able to do it then with people who aren't nearby us. And a lot of people don't live nearby their families. And so it allows people a way to sort of maintain that connection and communication. Yeah, that, that's, that's an excellent point. Uh, the the Zoom, the Skype, Facebook video, that these are wonderful platforms to be able to have these conversations face-to-face -face with people. I mean, it's not the same as being in the room with somebody, uh, but it's the closest thing that we have currently and the safest too, given, uh, given everything that's going on. Indeed. Absolutely. So something else that you talked about in the book, and it was coupled with intellectual humility, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, is something known as the growth mindset. Mm. And I am very curious to hear as to why exactly, like, is this something that you found through your own research the, with the intellectual uh, humility component and the growth mindset? Or was that through, uh, you know, when you were doing research for the book or something that you came across previously? 
where embracing the growth mindset really helped people with this component of intellectual humility. And again, correct me if I'm wrong. I don't know if I'm remembering that correctly. Mm, sure. I mean, the thing about the growth mindset is, and, and this is something I had come across, but not looked as deeply into uh, until I was working on the book, but just this idea that, you know, like for children, you can say, oh, you know, oh, look how smart you are. You know, you, you, you got that right. Um, and, and then people think, oh, this is about me being smart. Um, the growth mindset sort of says, you can say, oh, look how hard you worked on that. And you got that, you got that right. And then that encourages people to sort of strive for uh, uh, doing that thing rather than think, oh, either I can or can't do it just naturally. So one of the things about the growth mindset is it sort of puts us in a place of wanting to know more, wanting to gain more knowledge and not just thinking, well, I'm, you know, I, I know things or I'm smart, you know, sort of uh, being in a place of this is a, this is a quality or characteristic of myself, um, but really striving and really encouraging people to strive. I first came across, uh, I believe it's Carol Dweck is a psychologist that uh, came up with the growth mindset and she uh, was one of the I think she was the first individual to do research on it. And the flip side of the growth mindset is a fixed mindset where you think that, you know, intelligent is inherent to a degree of like, there's nothing that you can do about it. Like you can't develop any sort of skills or anything like that. But I, I know that as soon as I read that and uh, found out about the growth mindset versus the fixed mindset, I was all on board with the growth mindset. Uh, as somebody who loves to continue to learn and try to push myself to challenge myself, it, I suppose, it just resonated a little bit with my personality, but it also kind of made sense based off of all of the observations uh, through over the years as well, that you know this is just a better type of philosophy to approach life when it comes to learning and outcomes and things of that nature is to embrace more of a growth mindset where, certain things are not fixed. Uh, you have to work really, really hard and you're not going to achieve everything. Mm -hmm. uh, however, working hard is a very important component to all of this and Absolutely. nothing is fixed. So, and, and it's, and it's really the, you know, some of it is this question of how do you approach new information? You know, is, is that, is that a challenge to your idea that you already know everything? Or is it, oh, wow, that's, that's interesting. Uh, you know, what, what more can I know about that? And, and so I think if, if we can um, be in a place where, where we're like, oh, okay, not knowing something, that, that's kind of cool because then I have more to learn rather than not knowing something means that maybe I'm not as smart as I thought I was. Yes, absolutely. And I can definitely see now how it kind of pairs in with that intellectual humility component a little bit more. You know, something else uh, that you mentioned in your book, which I find fascinating because I had already read this book as well um, as a fan of psychology, is uh, the work of Robert Caldini and his book, Persuasion. So you talk about some of the persuasion techniques. I'm curious as to why you felt compelled in, uh, to include that in, in the book. That's a great question. Um, <laughs> It, part of it is that a lot of people say, well, the reason I want to have dialogue is I want to persuade the other person. And so 
I did not make that the first chapter because I really want people to go through this thinking about what are your goals and helping to develop listening skills and managing emotions and, and to be able to maintain those relationships and recognize that no matter what your goal is, that's going to be really helpful. And honestly, once people have that foundation, they might give up that idea that the most important thing is to convince the other person. And the, the other piece of that is that if, if that's your only goal is to persuade somebody else, first of all, that's not probably not going to happen quickly, you know, uh, especially for sort of bigger things that are based in people's values. And so the, the more flexibility we have with are what the outcome, what a good outcome might be, then, then the less frustrated we're going to be with that conversation. So if we think, okay, a good outcome would be me understanding more where that person's coming from. That's great. And at the same time, some people are still going to go, okay, fine. I understand. I can manage my emotions. I still want them to see the error of their ways, or I still at least <laughs> want to introduce them to some new information or some information from my perspective and, you know, see if that's going to make a difference to them. Because one of the things we know is that, you know, people are getting exposed to very different content these days. And so somebody might say, well, you know, I want to at least share this content with them. So that's where, that's why I included the persuasion piece, because it's part of what really motivates people. And you know, people want some way to, if, if they're going to try to persuade someone, what's the best way to do that? You know, they, they, and a lot of people ask me about framing arguments and, you know, what's the best way, like, how should we be framing political arguments? And there are other people who do much better writing about this. George Lakoff is, you know, that's, that's his jam. And so I'll, I'm going to leave that to him because, because my work is not as much about sort of how we craft exactly what we say. Because I think probably more important is to go into these conversations with, with your intention and your skills. And then you've got to kind of see how that, see where that goes and allow that to be an interaction where you're not just sort of, you know, this scripting it out. This is what the script is. So in terms of persuasion, I thought it's important that I draw on some of what we know about persuasion, but it's all got to be built on this foundation of relationship. You know, what's the relationship you have with somebody and can you understand where they're coming from? So that's really foundational. And on top of that, you can do a lot of different things. You can do persuasion, you can do common ground. Um, you can, uh, go have lunch. I mean, you know, that, that once you've got that foundation, it opens up a lot more possibility. You know, another thing about the, the persuasion is that, I mean, it's good to kind of understand these persuasive skills that actually work. They have the backed by, you know, scientific evidence that shows that these are the best ways to persuade. But on the other side of it, even if you're not interested in persuading other people, let's say, uh, it's important, at least in my opinion, to understand these persuasion skills for when other people are clearly using them on you. Uh, you know, the world is full of interesting individuals. Some of them are lower integrity, let's say, than others. Um, so, you know, perhaps they are aware of these uh, persuasion skills and work in sales and may not have the highest integrity. Therefore, they're using these in order to, to try to manipulate people in order to make sales. And 
I just think being aware of these particular persuasive skills, uh, again, even if you're not the one trying to do the persuading is empowering to the individual uh, because then they can see, hopefully they can spot it when other people are trying to use those skills on them. Absolutely. I mean, I think that um, understanding our own minds and the, the flaws in our thinking and understanding how other people are trying to, you know, might uh, sort of try to um, play on those flaws in our own thinking is, is also very useful. I, I think that's empowering. I think all, you know, really ideally all of this is empowering. Having, having skills to be able to have dialogue, having knowledge about the limitations of uh, our sort of, uh, you know, our, of our psychology, that then it, you know, knowing our limitations shouldn't just bum us out, you know, it, it should make us go, oh, okay, well, if I know that my thinking might be flawed in that way, then how do I, you know, then, then what do I do to either compensate for that? Or how do I notice where I'm doing that and where it's not, not benefiting me? Absolutely. So moving on to a portion of your book where I was really, really curious because it's, I'm not entirely sure if I agree with it. So I guess this will be you and I getting into a little bit of a dialogue. Oh, fantastic. Is, <laughs> is uh, I'm just really curious to hear your take on the logical fallacy and why you, uh, in the book at least, presented it as that you should not go down this route of trying to, let's say, deconstruct somebody's argument using logic or pointing out logical fallacies. And I was, I'm just really, really curious to hear why it is you put that in the book, number one, and then number two, based off of your experience, research, et cetera, why you found that this is not a good route to go down. Okay, that's a great question. So let me ask you, um, what would be your goal in doing that? Well, the goal in pointing out a logical fallacy, at least, the way, so when I first learned it, it was probably like when I first started to getting into discussions and learning about logic, it was to win. It was basically a debate and I want to win and I want to make your argument look bad. So therefore I win type of deal. Mm -hmm. However, as it has evolved and particularly with this platform, I want it to be more of a, a segue, let's say, into encouraging the other person to perhaps use logic. And of course, I suppose that I can definitely see your point where if the person has no idea, has like no, knows nothing about logic, and then all of a sudden you're dropping these things on them that are essentially foreign words <laughs> that, that could be completely deconstructive. So I'm going to, I guess, a short answer um, to your question is that I was using it to win in the beginning. It has, it has changed and evolved over time as I've learned more, uh, but it was, it was to win. Mm -hmm. Um, so, and, and, and I think that's wonderful self-reflection and honesty to be able to see that because I'm not sure that everyone even realizes when they're trying to win, you know, with that. So I, it, I think that when, when we look at what's going to be helpful here, I haven't seen any research that says when you disagree about politics, pointing out somebody's logical fallacies will change their mind. I, I haven't seen that research. 
I have looked, <laughs> I've looked, what does change people's minds? Actually, the, the most interesting thing that I saw, um, and this is in the book, is that there's this one study that shows that if, well, I mean, there, there are studies that show you can change people's minds by making them, putting them farther away from you. And the way you do that is like on social media, you disagree with somebody and, and then that actually move, could move them in a farther direction away. Um, the study's more specific than that. But, but if you actually want to try to bring someone over to your side, the thing that seems like it could have some utility is asking for elaboration. Tell me more about that. It's not about us pointing out to other people that they're seeing things wrong. Um, it's about us saying, oh, and, and truly being curious, not doing this in a kind of gotcha way, but, oh, tell me a little bit about how, you know, a single payer health healthcare plan would work. Uh, tell me a little bit more about, you know, um, uh, how, you know, restricting abortion to only maternal life endangerment, how would that work? And playing it out because we, and, and this is one of my favorite terms that I found when I was doing this, the research for the book, the illusion of explanatory depth. That one of the, the flaws that we have in our thinking is thinking that we understand things in much greater detail than we actually do. So it's not pointing out to someone, oh, you're seeing this wrong. It's saying to somebody, tell me more about this and letting them identify for themselves where, where the gaps might be. It's not necessarily where they're seeing things wrong and it doesn't necessarily change their mind, but it might make them less confident that, that they know everything about it. And um, so, so it brings, a, it might bring about more of that intellectual humility that opens people up to that dialogue and maybe even to other ways of thinking, but it's not, it's not our best role to tell other people that they're thinking wrong. I definitely can appreciate that. So I'm going to speculate a little bit here and I'm curious as to what you think on it. Mm -hmm. If more people were trained in philosophy, uh, logic in particular, let's say. Um, so again, same scenario, but the other person is also fluent in logic, logical fallacies, et cetera, structures of arguments. And then you chose to go down that route of trying to analyze these arguments, break them apart, see if they were good, bad, point out any sort of logical fallacies. I think at that point, it could probably be constructive and that you might be able to move. I mean, I'm speculating here. I have no idea uh, because I don't have any uh, sort of research to back this up. However, uh, I know that when I have gotten into dialogues with individuals who are versed in logic and were able to go back and forth and have an appreciation for structuring a good argument, um, which means the uh, no logical fallacies present and being able to point them out, that that does help to create better arguments. I don't know if it necessarily changes our minds, mm -hmm. uh, but it definitely helps to craft better arguments so therefore we know exactly how strong and how or how weak it might be uh, so i could see it being beneficial in that aspect if more people were versed in logic along with uh, logical fallacies 
Sure. And I mean, that sounds like a sort of collaborative, creative endeavor in a way, you know, like, and I always think that we're more productive when we sort of think about ourselves being on the same side of the table, um, working on something rather than being across the table, you know, trying to, to argue against each other. It's like, come around to my side of the table or I'll come around to your side and let's, let's look at these arguments and let's, let's do something with them. That's, that's a very different kind of thing. So, so I think it's, I always go back to what's your goal? Like, what are you trying to achieve? And sure, if, if that's what you're trying to achieve and, and you can find somebody to, to do that with you, then sure. I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to tell you that not to do that. I just think that that's not how most people are using it. I think most people are, you know, kind of weaponizing it to, yes. you know, to not only point out to somebody else how they're wrong, but then, you know, go around telling people, oh, well, the other side see things this way and that's not logical. So I think it's really thinking about being intentional about how we use it in terms of what our goals are. Yeah, the, the, the misuse of it or the weaponization of logic and logical fallacies, that is definitely detrimental. And I do teach uh, the structure of an argument, logical fallacies, um, dialogue, discourse, um, how, again, how you structure an argument and good, bad, et cetera, through intelligent speculation. But one of the things that I always try to stress is, and I've said this repeatedly in my writings and through social media, and this goes back to your point of what is your goal and uh, you know, if you can bring somebody onto your team, uh, I, I think that that is, is just fantastic, that thinking, thinking of it as almost a waltz, if you will, like, you know, two dancing partners, and you can only do it together, uh, and that the goal isn't to actually, like, beat the other person, like, it's not to win, so, like, it's not a debate, um, so this isn't, like, debate team or anything like that, where uh, you want to beat the other person, but the goal is to move yourself closer to truth together, that, that that is a goal that you wouldn't be able to reach if you were just by yourself because you're stuck in your own kind of like, I wanna say your own little bubble, but yeah, I mean, you have your own biases, you kind of have your own views of the world. And then this other person who doesn't agree with you, you know, also has their own biases, has their view of how the world works, but together uh, you may be able to come up with a better picture, uh, moving, moving yourselves closer to truth whatever that may be, you know, but yeah, I agree hundred percent though with that, that statement where you said about bringing the other person onto your team. I think that's fantastic. Great. Great. Yeah, absolutely. So do you see the state of, so you said you were an optimist earlier mm -hmm. and do you see the state of the political division healing uh, in the immediate future? Um, do you think that it will take many years, uh, you know, could take, I don't know, six months, a year only. But as far as the political polarization, mm -hmm. how do you, where do you see it going heading, heading forward? I am more and more optimistic all the time. And part of the reason for that is that once I started doing this work and writing the book, I started connecting in with a network of people and organizations who are also doing this work. So I wrote this book. I'm not the only person who's written a book about this. I'm not the only person who's done a workshop. There's lots of fantastic things happening. Um, I went to a virtual gathering that Braver Angels um, 
uh, hosted to sort of debrief uh, the incident at the Capitol on January 6th. And over 4,000 people attended. And I found that so encouraging. And there are, there are so many people who are doing this work now. And it's not mostly what we hear about. You know, we hear much more about political polarization. We hear much more about the extremes. And this is one of the ways that our perceptions are really skewed. Most people are not at the extremes, never have been, and still not at the extremes. And we have, when I share the data with people about this, they will find lots of ways of questioning the data because they, they don't, they, that's not how they see it. It's not what they see in the news. It's not what they believe. And that's one of those, you know, problems with our operating system. We tend to think that people are more extreme than they actually are. So the more I learn about this, the more I realize how most people are more in the middle. We have more in common than we think we do. And I see more people doing this work to try to bring people together. And so I find all of that incredibly encouraging. Um, I'm not going to predict that we will never have different views on things in this country because we've always had different views on things in this country. If, uh, you know, even if you're not a, a history buff, if you've seen Hamilton, then you've got to know that, you know, and what I hope is that we'll, um, we'll, we'll go with dialogue instead of duels. Um, but, but this is, I think, a weirdly encouraging moment. Um, because we're so divided, there are so many people working to build those bridges and to bring people together across them. And um, I, I encourage, you know, anyone who's interested, Braver Angels is doing great work, Living Room Conversations is doing great work, the Civil Squared folks have put out a lot of great content. And so I, I think that there's, um, and, you know, of course, read my book, Beyond Your Bubble. I mean, I think that there's just a lot more tools right now than we've ever had that are really focused on bridging the divide. Yeah, I think it's I think it's fantastic. There are, as you said, a ton of great people, including yourself, that are uh, doing fantastic work. I have a conversation in a week or two with a um, an individual from the Rand Institute, and they've done a great uh, they've done great work on this as well. But uh, I know for me, you know, going back to your point of people think it's more polarized than it actually is, and that more people are on the extremes. I'm certainly guilty of that, and I know that the media exacerbates this because fear, uh, uncertainty, and doubt, all of this drives clicks. And with, in, with the ad-driven model that they've adopted over the years, this is kind of, unfortunately, what drives, what drives them in order, uh, drives the news that you actually see because they want those clicks. Uh, I'm definitely guilty of that. And it is, you know, it's, it's refreshing and it's encouraging to hear that less people are divided than people think. Uh, but, you know, at the same time, we are polarized and the polarized, you know, you're, you're tracking polarization over the years. Uh, the polarization that we are experiencing right now is a bit more than average. Uh, maybe, maybe I'm underestimating that, maybe I'm overestimating it, but we can definitely say that it's more than average, that it's more than average and it's certainly having deleterious effects on the social fabric of society. So there's some serious work that needs to be done there mm -hmm. in order to, uh, in order to repair it. But anyway, I just wanted to thank you for coming on, Tanya. It was uh, it was a fantastic conversation. Uh, you know, the dialogue that we did have was 
was very pleasant and we, we really didn't disagree at all about anything but it was it was it was still fun to explore that uh that little discrepancy that we had there with the logical fallacies absolutely but, I, I i love the work that you're doing and it's great to get to talk with you about sort of melding our ideas and seeing how they mesh yeah, absolutely. And, you know, for those who are tuning in, where exactly can they find out more about you? Um, are you on social media? Do you have a, a web page that you want to send people to? Of course, beyond your bubble, check your book out. <laughs> absolutely. Um, TanyaIsrael.com is a good place to start. And there's a lot of information there about the book. And also I'm starting to do um, my workshops in uh, online. So if people are interested in participating in that, you can get beyond your bubble at wherever you like to buy books. And um, uh, on social media, you can find me at BYB Dialogue on Instagram and Twitter. And yeah, I, I invite you to participate in this conversation. Fantastic. Uh, for those of you tuning in, thank you for stopping by. Um, it's been a wonderful conversation with Tanya and I really hope that you enjoyed it as well. Uh, definitely check out the work that she is doing. You know, something that we talk about regularly is how to have respectful conversations with people, or in this instance, you know, phrasing them as dialogues, how to have respectful dialogues with individuals. You know, politics isn't something that we normally get into. However, it is kind of captivated uh, and dominated the news sphere for a while now. And, you know, political polarization is something that we should be concerned about. Um, it's not nearly as bad as we all think it is, uh, according to the data. However, it is, it is something that uh, we need to work on as a society and come together and uh, heal the divide a little bit. So stay tuned, more great content coming forward. You know, go ahead, leave us a review, hit that like button, and take care. <laughs>